Well, if you will, please turn in a copy of God's Word to Acts chapter uh, 18. Acts chapter 18. This morning we're looking at verses 1 through 18. You'll find that in your bulletin by convenience, but there's nothing like having your own copy of God's Word. Um, let's, uh, let's read from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 18. Hear now the Word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the revival that you brought into Corinth, a very wicked city. We thank you, Father, that there is salvation offered to all who call upon your name. And that you have... You had in Corinth and you have in this city uh, a people. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we hear your word preached, that you would grant an unction, unction to the uh, preacher and the hearer alike. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Acts is one of those really exciting books, and we have been through some pretty exciting times together. And can you imagine being there on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 souls were saved in the temple courts? Or to see Dorcas raised from the dead, that would have been a lot of fun. Or, or to see the first Gentiles hear the gospel and receive the Holy Spirit. We've seen the worst persecutor of the church of the day turned into the most effective evangelist and church planner potentially ever in church history. But we've also seen people like Herod eaten up with worms because he did not give glory to God. A lot's going on. And we come to another one of those kind of passages today where God really stirs things up as salvation comes to a, a new land and the gospel will transform people throughout the region. However, if we're not careful, it's, it's easy to miss it. It's easy to miss what happened in Corinth. 
Great things happened there. Many people called on the name of the Lord from different backgrounds. And how did that happen? Well, it's not because Paul had great words of eloquence. He tells us elsewhere he wasn't a good speaker. It's not because of Paul's courage or strategic marketing plan. It was because of God's plan. God had people in Corinth who belonged to Him and He would save them. God has people in Bruton and He will save them as well. Well, why Corinth? Why do we find Paul in Corinth? Corinth was about 40 or 50 miles from Athens, which is where we left Paul. Um, Athens was a place of... um, It has seen better days. Its great heyday was about four or five hundred years before this. But Corinth was different. See, Athens had about 10,000 people, but Corinth had about about 200,000 people in it. Athens had been a place where Paul had been met with indifference, and yet it was one of those really respectable respectable places of, of high learning, of everybody prim and proper, but no one really had much time for Jesus. And so Paul goes to a completely different kind of place next. 40 or 50 miles down the road, an incredibly prosperous city, a commercial town, and the political capital of the area. But here's the thing, it was a really wicked place, a really wicked place. Before I came to Bruton, I served as an assistant pastor at a church in Montgomery, a church plant. And church planting is its whole different little world. It is the most effective people, to, most effective way to, to reach people for Christ in many ways. And you have conferences, and there, you know, when you start to look at where you're going to plant a church, you, you do studies, you talk to other pastors, you do the demographic research to see where and, and when and you know, what kind of building you're going to be in to communicate what to people. Paul just goes to the next place to a very, very wicked place. As far as we know, there were only two believers there, Priscilla and Aquila, who had just recently come there. And it was a place so bad that the verb in those days to Corinthianize meant to live a sexually immoral life. It it would be like Paul setting up, or, or you or I setting up a new church plant in a Manhattan, Amsterdam, Las Vegas, and red light district all rolled into one. And this is where Paul went. There was great need for the gospel. Well, a lot of commentators think that Paul might have been discouraged as he rolls into Corinth. We don't know this for sure. He, he, he says some things that hint at that in, in 1 Corinthians. Things had been rough, right? In, uh, in Thessalonica and Berea, he had been driven out for political unrest. He had been beaten in Philippi. In Athens, in this incredibly prosperous, well, prosperous culturally kind of place, only just, just a few people had called on the name of the Lord. And so he is heading to Corinth by himself. Timothy and Silas are going to catch up with him. But God gives him this great gift. He rolls into town and he seems to immediately meet two people, Priscilla and Aquila. We're going to learn a lot more about them next week. They're going to be not just Christian friends like they are here. They're going to be partners in ministry with Paul. Well, he sets up shop with them and he stays with them. He is a tent maker. Now, during part of during Paul's time, during part uh, during part of Paul's time, and somewhere around there uh, in Corinth, he's going to be a tent maker, right? This is a phrase that we use now to talk about someone who is in bivocational ministry, 
someone who has a, a real job, right, and then does preaching on the side. Uh, bivocational, having two jobs, uh, a, a job in the quote-unquote secular world and then a church job. Um, and he does do this for a little while. And he's very clear in his letter to the Corinthians that he didn't take any money from them. However, I will say that this period was actually pretty short-lived. Because, see, first, God is going to bring Priscilla and Aquila into their li- his life, and he's going to labor with them. It's fun to have Christians to labor with if you have that uh, blessing at your workplace. But, but soon, he's going to send Silas and Timothy uh, to join Paul. And when Silas and Timothy show up, we, we learn from the rest of Paul's epistles, they actually brought a gift from Thessalonica uh, and from Philippi, which would allow him to dedicate his time to preaching the Word of God. In fact, when Silas and Timothy show up, they find him occupied with the Word. And it seems that he had transitioned from going into the, Sabbath, in, going into the synagogue on the Sabbath and seeking to reason and persuade the the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks that Jesus was the Christ just on, on the Sabbath to, to it seems to be something that has continued to grow. Well, things begin to bust loose. I mean, some really exciting things show up. First, Paul and Silas and Timothy show up with some money. That really helps, so he can focus on that. And then quickly, God is on the move. What happens? People start becoming Christians left and right. Remember, this is a a terribly, terribly ungodly place. That The first person who becomes a believer, we learn from 1 Corinthians, is a man named Stephanus and his family. But then a man named Titius Justus. That's that's a good Roman name if I ever heard one. Uh, He becomes a believer. And guess what? The leader of the synagogue becomes a Christian. Now talk about a coup, right? I mean, here Paul is reasoning in the synagogue that Jesus is the Messiah, and the chief elder at the front says, yeah, that's right. That is right. Jesus is the Messiah. Well, they don't really like that. They don't. We get their response in verse 6, and when when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. You know, Satan didn't like what was going on. He doesn't like people to be freed from their sins. He doesn't like to see the bonds of slavery to transgression broken. He didn't like people to have hope. And so he stirred up the unbelieving Jews within the synagogue. And, and the writer here, Luke, under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses two real key words. The first is oppose, and oppose in the Greek here means to wage war. They weren't, it wasn't just that they disagreed with Paul. They vehemently opposed him. They wanted to see him gone. The second is that we read here that they reviled him. What does revile mean? It means to abuse verbally. Paul would show up after a while and they weren't having it. And they just start yelling. And Paul says, okay, I'm done. I'm innocent of your blood. The watchman from Ezekiel, he has issued the warning and you have heard it. And I am no longer responsible for you. He washes his hands, he drops the mic, and he walks out. And guess where he goes? This is my favorite part of the whole passage. He goes next door. So one of the people who had become a believer was Titius Justus. Titius Justus's house seemed, it just happened, quote unquote. Coincidentally, almost like God had planned it, next door to the synagogue. Apparently, 
apparently Titius Justus was a wealthy and influential man. Paul's in the habit of, of asking rich people in Acts to host the church. This was really common. He would have had a big place for people to worship. And so while Paul seems to continue to live with Priscilla and Aquila, he sets up his ministry headquarters and the place for their worship right there next to the synagogue. I mean, you just you got to love it. As people who hated Paul were heading to worship, what did they have to walk by? The, the, the new church with the big marquee, you know, the flashing one that keeps you awake at night, and it says First Presbyterian Church of Corinth, right there next to the synagogue. And it was just smack in their faces. You know, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And more and more people in Corinth were becoming Christians. And we see two, two, two groups are mentioned here, these, these new Christians the first is uh, in verse 8. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Really? The Corinthians? You know, here we have the transforming power of the gospel on display. We see very clearly God's love for the wicked who are his people, who have not yet called on his name. Why? Let me tell you about what Paul says about these Corinthians. He doesn't pull any punches in the first letter of the Corinthians. Verse 26, chapter 1, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. These weren't important people according to the world standards. This was probably just a good old blue-collar church. You know, folks working hard, eking by, with no name, with, uh, with, with no, you know, not a big bank account, with not a whole lot going for them. These weren't quote-unquote important people. These were normal people like you and me. But these were Gentiles. These were Gentiles. Let me read you about what he said about their lifestyle before they became believers. They weren't upstanding people. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There are several lists like this in Scripture. But the key is verse 11. And such were some of you. Where had Paul recruited? The red light district. Where were these people coming to salvation from? They weren't righteous people. They were those in need of a Savior. And such were some of you. It was no longer their identity. They had been saved, but, but you know they had to struggle, right? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, so many people, so many people, in Corinth, they're going to be converted from living a pagan lifestyle full of sexual morality and worshiping false gods that we know from Paul's letters the gospel is not just going to stay in Corinth. It's going to go throughout the whole region. It's like wildfire. You can't stop it. As we were coming in last night uh, from the Castleberry area, about 6 o'clock or so, there was a brush fire uh, north of Tommy Quick's church. Uh, and there were people responding to it. It might have been designed, I don't know. But, but it's amazing to see that how quickly it'll spread. When something's dry and, and needs to, it has, it, it, it's, it's ripe for burning. 
Corinth, by God's grace, was ripe for the fire of the Holy Spirit to go out and to bring men and women, boys and girls, to a saving knowledge of Jesus from rough backgrounds. What would happen if people like that came to our church? Would we be okay with that? I sure hope so. Because such were some of us. Such were some of us. God isn't doing small things. He's doing big things. And He's not just... You know, it's, it's actually harder to convert people who are religious. And they become Christians here too. See, see, a bunch of Jews start becoming Christians too. Just because He stopped ministering in the synagogue doesn't mean that Jews have stopped coming to know the Lord. In fact, this, this might be my second part, favorite part of this passage, is that um, there are two rulers of the synagogue who become believers. The first is Crispus, and then the next guy does too. Sosthenes. I mean, talk about that. They remove Christmas, the first guy, and then the next guy steps up, and guess what? He becomes a Christian too. In fact, he is beaten at the end of this passage for his faith. He's, he is mentioned as one of the writers of 1 Corinthians. That's how much his life was transformed. You know, both the religious and the irreligious need salvation. You know, both those who look to their own efforts for salvation and those who seek to break the law of God because it's fun need salvation. Salvation can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what's in your past. I don't know what's in your present. The Lord's not scared of it. He came to die for it, to save you from it. Whether you're religious and you think that you can save yourself or that you just don't care that you're on the highway to hell. That defines well the Corinthian church, full of redeemed sinners like you and me, people whose lives were a mess. Well, this must have seemed pretty exciting to Paul, um, but perhaps a little disconcerting. Some commentators picked that up. I'm not convinced. You know, sometimes when things are going well, we're looking for the other shoe to drop. That's a place of fear, by the way. It's never a good place to be. It's not from the Lord. But, but you know that feeling, right? When things are going really well, it's like... Psh. Apparently there's something going on that I don't know about because it can't be going well this well. And it hadn't gone this well for Paul in fat past places as long as it had here. He's going to be there a whole, about a year and a half or so, maybe longer. Um, and so in the middle of this, as he think, perhaps thinks about Philippi and Berea, Thessalonica, is he going to get beaten, is he be driven out? God gives him an amazing present. He gives him a vision. We see this in verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. We'll spend more time on this in a minute, but we, we see three commands from God. First, don't be afraid. Two, keep on speaking. And three, do not be silent. I love the King James Version here. It says, hold not thy peace. I like that a lot. You know, perhaps I, I get in trouble on that one because I hold not my peace on certain things I should hold my peace on. But when it comes to the gospel, hold not thy peace. We don't have visions like this anymore because we have something so much better, the finished Word of God, something even Paul didn't have because God was using him to write it. You know, one of the true marks of revival according to Jonathan Edwards, is a greater love for others. That's one of the chief marks of revival. I love it when I look out and y'all are hanging around after the service and talking and the deacons start flashing the lights. You know, uh, 
they actually say that people sticking around after the church talking is actually a sign of revival because there's love within the church. So I expect you to fake it this afternoon, you know, at the end of the service. Uh, but chief mark, one of the chief marks is love for others, and love for others is going to be demonstrated in love and deed, in word and deed, in what we say and how we help others. And that's what God was calling Paul here to, and that's what God calls us to do. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Hold not thy peace. Well, things are continuing to bust loose, and there's help from an unexpected place, but it actually comes through a desire to persecute Paul. It's really fun to see how God thwarts the plans of Satan here. It shows you who really is in charge. And it's God, by the way. Um, it's because Paul is brought before the Roman proconsul, Gallio. Now, Gallio is actually a pretty important guy. He's going to die at the hand of Nero, the same guy who's going to kill Paul, uh, killed Gallio, the guy that Paul goes before here. Uh, so the Jews bring, the unbelieving Jews bring, before, bring Paul before the tribunal, before the proconsul, and they basically want him, the Gallio, to say, you can't, you can't preach this stuff, you've got to get out of here, perhaps let's beat him just to, for good measure. But Gallio won't have anything to do with it. Before Paul can even open his mouth to defend himself, Gallio says, I don't want to hear this. This, this is not a, a matter before the courts, it's not a matter of wrongdoing or violence. This is within your laws, the words and names. I don't have anything to do with it. Now, this is important, uh, and we shouldn't miss this, although I would have if the commentators hadn't pointed out, that what happens here is that God uses Gallio to give to Christianity legal standing, at least for a while. See, Judaism was actually a protected religion, and Jews were free, one of the only people in the entire Roman Empire who had this freedom. They could worship God any way they wanted to as long as they did not revolt against Rome. And what Gallio has just said is that Christianity is Judaism, which means it's now protected. Which means that there's going to be freedom for a while in the area for the gospel to go forth. And it's going to go forth. And there are going to be people all over Corinth and all over Achaia who become Christians. All right, let's shift gears for a second. A lot of exciting stuff has happened. Revival has come to an incredibly ungodly city. And then those who are ungodly but think they're godly because of their righteous quote-unquote deeds, they're saved too. How could this happen? Well, Paul is real quick to say that it wasn't because of him. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 3 and 4. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In my speech, my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You know, true revival can't be produced by man. You can fake it for a while with flashy programs. The big building campaign with emotionally manipulative services I've been thinking we need more fog machines in here. <laughs> Even perhaps some creative accounting. But true revival is a movement of God the Holy Spirit working through His Word using weak and imperfect messengers like Paul and you and me. You can't argue people into heaven. 
You can't manipulate people into conversion or force people to accept Christ. It's like pushing a rope uphill. You just can't do it. So how did it happen? And why did it happen in Corinth and not in Athens? Some of these other places he went. Why? The key is verse 10. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, or to harm you. For, here it is, I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. What's he talking about? God has before the foundation of the world, according to Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 1, all of the Old Testament, God has before the foundation of the world chosen to Himself a people to call His own. And He calls them out of the religious and the irreligious alike, out of the outwardly moral and the outwardly licentious, out of the poor and the rich, out of every tribe, nation, race, and tongue. He is not a respecter of persons because no one deserves salvation no matter what their background or what their resume says. And God tells Paul that he should not be afraid because Jesus is going to restrain evil for a season because there are people, His people, in Corinth who have not yet heard the gospel and call on the name of the Lord. They will, and God's going to use Paul to do it. And no one's going to harm Paul until he's reached everyone that God has appointed him to do so. You know, these people, His people, needed to be reached. And God gave, the Father gave to His Son, Jesus, this people, God's people. So God chose His people, then He gave His people to His Son. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. For My Father, who has given them to Me, it's a great line, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Praise God God, that no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. John 17, verses 1 through 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh. Here it is. To give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. God the Father gave the Son a people to save. This was in the Christmas story, Matthew 1.21. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save who? His people from their sin. And Jesus receiving this people, he did something for them, for us. What did he do? John chapter 10, verses 11 and 15. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for whom? For the sheep. But these people still need to be saved. Chosen for the foundation of the world, died for on the cross, but still they had to hear the Word of God, repent of their sins, and put faith in Jesus Christ. And we've seen how this works in Acts already. How does that happen? Well, the dead must be given new ears. They have to go from hearing with their ears to hearing with their hearts. We saw this in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
If, if the Holy Spirit had not opened Lydia's heart, she never would have heard. In Acts 13, 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Here it is. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God had appointed to eternal life people in Corinth who had not yet heard the word of God. And it was not time for persecution to happen yet. It'll come, but it wasn't yet. A year and a half, the Lord kept it from coming. How did, how did revival happen in Corinth? God saved His people. He had people in Corinth who had yet to be converted. And none of His people will be lost. They are secure in Christ. And so He moved all of history, all of culture, even working through Gallio to give Paul freedom. Because verse 18 tells us that after this, Paul stayed many days longer. Doing what? Reaching the lost. And guess what? Guess what? God has people in Metro Bruton, right? This great metropolis from Castleberry. Can we call Castleberry part of Bruton Metro? Down to East Bruton in a Riverview. Down to Pollard. Flomington might be the next area. He has people in Metro Bruton. And guess what? Some of those people hadn't been converted yet. Their name's been written in the book of life. And now he is using his people, you and me, messy folks like you, me, and Paul, to reach those people with the good news. Will you be a part of that effort? We can heed the words of Christ when we are afraid. And it, is, it can be fearful. It can be scary. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Hold not thy peace. Evangelism and outreach are effective. Why is that? Because we can't produce it. We can't make people Christians. But as the means by which God calls His people to salvation, gives them new hearts, causes them to repent, believe, be justified and adopted, these things are effective not because we have the right answers, but because the Holy Spirit uses scared people like you and me to bring salvation to His people, to the lost. So let us be about the business of God and hold not our peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken through your word. May we hear by the Holy Spirit that we would be not afraid to keep on speaking and we wouldn't hold our peace. We pray for great revival in Bruton, East Bruton, the surrounding areas. Lord, that the roads would be clogged on Sunday mornings. That we'd have to refill the baptismal font. Lord, that there might be a second, third, and fourth Presbyterian church. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.